0: Hi, I'm Reebs, and I lead a college ministry in a local church. And I'm Maddie, and I am currently unemployed. <laughs> and we're the O God Podcast. This is a space
1: where we hope to connect people to one another to create opportunities for you to ask big questions about your faith and find honest dialogue around those questions and to form community with one another so we can feel connected as we walk through this deconstruction process.
0: So, welcome to a faith community that redefines faith in a world that isn't as black and white as the church may make it seem. Yeah. So, Maddie, you're moving. I am.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm actually, at this point, I'm moved. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, so I haven't talked about it a lot on here, but a few months ago, I started to feel that tension of feeling like you didn't really fit in the place that you were anymore. Mm-hmm. And I knew that at some point I wanted to move out of the city that I was in and explore a new place and do something a little bit different. And mm-hmm. so I took the the leap Mm -hmm. and you know quit my job and moved to St. Louis and I'm exploring that space and hunting for jobs and figuring everything out Mm -hmm. um and so yeah it's been scary and fun yeah in a very long couple of weeks.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and you've been very good about like keeping it hush hush. Um, cause you've been kind of like in the works of like moving, you know, and like, yeah. So anyways, I'm proud of you yeah, because you did a big scary thing of, you know, recognizing that it's time for you to find something new and a lot of people stay in the comfortable thing. So Yeah. I'm happy for you. Thank you. It's, it's
1: fun. And I have a really cute apartment. Mm -hmm. um, And so I'm really excited about that. And there are some potential things in the works. Um, but I also think this has been a fun exercise for me and just trusting that, like
0: trusting your gut,
1: you know, trust myself, Mm -hmm. trust that like holy nudge that I Mm -hmm. like to ignore a lot. Um, and you know, it'll, it'll be what it is and it's going to be pretty cool at this point. I figure i 'm kind of banking on the fact that i 'm young and i 'm single and I don't have a lot of tied down commitments, and mm-hmm. so I have flexibility yeah and um, yeah, so we 're going to see where we land mm-hmm. woo i 'm also kind of excited too. The perk of floating around in the job market right now is that my schedule is wide open, <laughs> and so we have been coordinating some trips mm-hmm. um, and i 'm just kind of banking that I 'll have a job by some of them, but. Yeah one of which yes is going shee, shee, to shee, universal shee, she, 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 she. studios to see the In Hell LA. house maze
0: ah, they're putting into the halloween
1: haunt thing yes yeah, You know,
0: now that we've said it on the podcast, it actually has to happen because that's going to be embarrassing if we don't buy those <laughs> tickets. <tonight. laughs> so we got to do that after we yeah, record. Maddie and I have been like planning. We've been like, yes, we will go to that. But we haven't actually like bought the tickets or the plane tickets yet. Um, Which but, we need to because my uncle's bought his. Yes. So we're going with my
1: family and he yeah. is like so, committed. Mm-hmm. So like we got to I'm committed go.
0: in my spirit. I'm just... Um, dreading the cost of the plane ticket. But in the yeah. end, it's worth it. Because Hill House really is the one thing that I'm just all in for. It's it's rare that yeah. I get obsessed and like that attached to something. So when you told me about that thing, it was like, yes, this makes sense. It was the beginning of our friendship. Yep. And so this is a good old milestone. I will mm-hmm.
1: suffer through 15 other haunted houses just mm-hmm. to tour. Yeah, I'm, the, I'm dreading the other ones. <laughs> the other ones. Yes, I
0: will need an adult diaper. Like I will... <laughs> not be doing well. Um yeah, it'll be fine. I'm going to, you know, we'll pack a couple extra pairs of pink. it'll be fine. Yeah, it'll be
1: good. <laughs> I'm just hoping I don't accidentally punch someone in the door yeah. or something.
0: <laughs> One time, um so me and my best friend in high school, Mallory, we would watch like scary movies together and she and I would like we went to go see, I think it was like the second insidious movie in theaters. Mm-hmm. And um, we were like sitting there and there was like this really scary part. And we were like really huddled up next to each other. And I literally got so afraid that I bit her arm. And she was <laughs> like, oh, what? <laughs> I know. It was like mid-movie. And she was like, did you just bite me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I like swear my. If instinct- you bite me
1: in this haunted house, I'm gonna be so mad.
0: We're just in the haunted house and I'm just like <laughs> gnawing on people. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, apparently my fear instinct is to just bite. So you're a fighter and not a flighter. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: I'm a flighter. Mm-hmm. I am a freeze and run. Yeah. I talk a big game, but I'm it's not a
0: fighter bite for me. <laughs> <laughs> bite or bite. Okay. Um yes. Oh yeah, I can't gosh. wait for it. Because also they're coming out with not the third season of hill house, right? It's no, just it's like the next iteration TV of the project. Yeah. Yeah, same guy who's making it. And I just can't stop thinking about it. It's I'm called so what? Excited. Like Crocker Island or
1: something? Um, well, it's midnight, midnight, Mass. midnight Mass, but it's on this island. Yes. It looks literally so good. And it so looks like they've good. already started filming the second season ah! because it's Midnight church or something that oh comes yes out in like you're 22. right I looked
0: it up yeah. and there's so there's like midnight mass and then there's some other yeah, yeah like midnight because Maddie and I are both obsessed with this director Mike Flanagan yeah he just does such like cool things and so I was googling like what other stuff has he done Um, and yeah, it looks like he already has a second thing in the works, sort of in the same, it sounded like it was in the same vein. It has
1: the same name. So I'm assuming kind of like the haunting of Mm -hmm. that. It'll be something similar.
0: But I'm so shocked because they kept it really under wraps. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like after Blind Manor, they had, he had already announced that there wouldn't be like a third haunting thing. So in my mind, and I also thought he was working on a movie or something. So they just kind of didn't really talk about it that much. Yeah. So I'm proud of them for keeping that as a surprise. And
1: I'm so stoked. We're going to have to plan like a binging oh, weekend yes. to just watch the This whole morning thing. I
0: like got I had a hair appointment and she was asking me to like schedule the next one and it was for like the day that it comes out September 24th and she was like, "Um, when are you free that day?" And I'm like, "Can we do like super early in the morning cuz me and my friend are already planning on like <laughs> watching that show all I day." I have a show I have that a I'm prior watching prior commitment <laughs> called binge watching Netflix.
1: <laughs> I am honored to participate in that commitment yeah. with you. Mhm. Mhm. All right. Before Mm -hmm. we get
0: started, I
1: want to invite (laughs) everyone to just take a deep breath. I like that. Because this is a heavier topic we're talking about today. So we'll just start with a little um, oxygen. Yeah, let's get it (sighs) fun. Awesome. So our conversation today is around the pro-life, pro-choice movement Mm-hmm. And the conversations that that begins to bring up in church spaces. yeah. Um, I feel that it is important as we kind of start for both Reeves and I to address, um, that we are in support of mm-hmm. um, in, in, you know, in allyship with anyone who has um, had an abortion themselves. that this is a space that is welcoming to you, that we want to be safe for you. I know that there are, Um, a lot of Christian spaces and religious spaces that are very um, unloving to say Mm -hmm. the very least um, towards those who have experienced that. And we want you to know that we love you and we support you and um, we validate that experience that you've had. So as we start this opening with that feels really important to me. Reeves, I don't know if there's anything you would add with that or.
0: Yeah, no, I think that that really um, in a lot of ways covers it because this is such a polarizing issue Mm -hmm. um that I think it's become really hard to just engage in conversation around it Mm -hmm. and so yeah I think that's the only other thing I would say is I think that this is a really it's obviously such an important issue to so many people like everyone is very passionate on their stance so it's definitely something that needs to be talked about I think it's just a matter of um you know, sort of learning the history behind it, which Mm -hmm. I think is always really telling of figuring out where the context is of how we got to the positions we were, we are today and how we got to this very polarized state that we are in today. And, um, yeah, just taking some time to sort of like talk about what, what it means, what Mm -hmm. we think personally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I definitely think because it is so opposite like that too. Like being very clear out of the gate of where we fall is important Um, because my hope is that this conversation is very informative and we Mm -hmm. recognize that this is obviously as with anything, not the full scope of, Mm -hmm. of everything. Um, But it's a place to start. And in the hopes of creating a space where we can talk about the entirety of an issue, you need to know all of the things that are being brought to the table. Yeah. So I know for myself, I fall under the pro-choice, end of the conversation. Um, and you know, for me, that means that I support a woman's right to choose what is happening to her body within her body, Mm -hmm. especially medically. Um, and you know, I also recognize that we just, we exist in a society of systems that makes it, um, difficult, um, if not impossible for all women to be able to give the life, um, Kind of necessary to another living thing yes. that you can't always create the environment yeah, that you would hope to. You don't have the support there. Right. Yeah. Um, or it's damaging to you, it would be damaging to the mm-hmm. child. Like there are so many things and complexities that go into that conversation that for me, um, you know, I am someone who believes that you should be able to have the autonomy of your body to decide what is going to be the best for you or the best for that child.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And same, I, um, I also fall in the pro-choice side of things. And with that, I recognize that, um, I think that the language that we have is very limiting in the sense of, It is such a gray topic. Mm -hmm. It is not as black and white as everyone has led us to believe because the second we start to look into this topic, it is there is such a range Mm -hmm. of beliefs on both sides, whether you fall in pro-choice or in pro-life. There is such a range of sort of like different, I don't know, boxes you can check.
1: It's always like, okay, well, but what if? yeah and there's so many what ifs yeah there are
0: and there's Mm -hmm. so many conditions of like well when does life start or what what about you know protecting the mother what about birth control like there are so it is such a complex issue right um and so i am pro-choice and i think that our language is limiting and divides us so Mm -hmm. but that's sort of the best way i can identify myself because i one thousand percent believe that a one we know birth or sorry not birth control birth control hasn't always existed. I mean, I guess herbal stuff happens, but we know abortion has taken place since ancient times. It will continue to happen. And my belief is always protecting the safety and health of everyone. And so we know it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I think it should be done safely and that everyone should be able to choose what happens within their body safely. Mm -hmm. Um, And in my mind, in an ideal world, women would be able to have children without the fear of the cost because economic like your economic standing is such a big factor in abortions there you know have been lots of studies that sort of show that that is the reason that a lot of women Mm -hmm. do um choose to have an abortion and not not all but you know i just think that that is such a big piece of things Mm -hmm. um and so, yeah, I I definitely am pro-choice because I see this as such a complex issue, and I think that everyone needs to be able to decide for themselves what to do within their bodies, and right. I think that they should be able to do that safely. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, I think that that's real, and you know, I also think that that complexity again comes into play at the reality of, you know, the systems people are at being asked yeah. to exist within as well. Yes. And I know. Um, you know, from my own experience in relationship with people who have, you know, gotten to the place where they have had abortions before, I think, um, there are so many layers to that decision as well. Mm -hmm. And so often the conversation gets diluted down to this very cut and dry. You made this decision and this is the consequence kind of thing. And it is so much more than that physically, mentally, emotionally. And I think, um, and that spiritually, is spiritually, I mean, yeah. that's why
0: we're talking about this. Like, so. I think
1: the whole conversation is so important mm-hmm. um, in order to not just recognize, you know, what we believe mm-hmm in finding the best ways to support the people in our lives, but also just being educated enough to recognize that that's not an easy choice that someone has made. Yes. And it is not one that people just make.
0: Yes. There yeah. are so many factors. Um, yeah. So I think before we get into some of the research, I just wanted to really quickly, because I feel like this was such a research-heavy episode, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to share some of my sources really fast so yeah. that we kind of say those up front. And then we'll make sure that these are also all on the website because... It might be possible that we miss just verbalizing one, but um, so I mostly pulled from. Um, there's a podcast called. Uh, stuff your mom never told you. And it's mm-hmm. really good. They talk about different like history things and things that you, your mom never told you, you know, mm-hmm. stuff you don't really grow up knowing. Um, so they did a really good deep dive. I think in like 2015 when there was all of the controversy around sort of like Roe versus Wade possibly being overturned. Right. Um, so they did a two-parter about just like deep history of abortion. Um, globally and then sort of as it goes on it narrows into like u.s policy which is really good and so i'll be sure to link that and then as well um we've mentioned the liturgist podcast before but they did a really beautiful episode also in 2015 with um rachel held evans Mm. so and they Mm -hmm. have re-released that one more recently but they have a really good conversation more on sort of some of the morality pieces Mm -hmm. and sort of theologically like what What does it mean to stand on either side and kind of talking about how it is such a great issue, as yeah. well as I pull from some NPR and um, Wikipedia, yeah. So, yeah,, yeah. And then
1: I've got a lot of stuff coming. I did a lot of um, the research from trying to pull even some of like the Jewish context in this conversation. And so a lot of my sources link directly back to um, various Mm -hmm. um, rabbinic voices. And then I did some of the research on the pro-life end of things. So there's stuff from the ProLifeAction.org website. Okay,
0: sweet. Nice. Well, um, I guess kind of starting on this, one thing that was very fascinating to me was sort of learning about historically some of the different methods that happened in ancient times, Mm -hmm. um, and learning about the fact that like with some of the other episodes we've talked about, a lot of our thoughts around the morality of abortion, it's changed a lot and it's changed a lot. Very, very recently. recently. Like the biggest push kind of being in the, well, kind of really the start of it being a moral issue, sort of like mid 1800s, if I'm right. And Mm -hmm. we'll get to dig a little deeper into that. But, um, Throughout ancient history, a lot of like abortifacients or herbal methods were used like teas and things that essentially would poison your body to cause you to miscarry, as well as a lot of like physical things. Um, One thing that I thought was particularly interesting was Aristotle actually prescribed that prostitutes and sex workers um jump up and down so high that like they would kick their heels to their butt like he would recommend that they do butt that Butt kicks yeah they would do butt kicks like jump up and down and do butt <laughs> oh kicks until that they would cause a miscarry from wow. the like physical exertion um which i just think that huh. stuff is interesting i sort of like you know that stuff as well as um a lot of thought throughout ancient Greece, and even sort of, like, when we get into some, like, early Christian theologians, such as, um, oh, who's the guy that we don't like, <laughs> that we talk about a lot, you know, the, uh, what's his name? Augustine. 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 Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry for that. Um, so Augustine even, like, sort of talked about it in this sense of, like, um, not ideal, but even then, it wasn't seen as really this big moral issue until after the quickening which the quickening is when mm-hmm. um typically it was kind of between 40 to 60 days after in- conception where you would actually the woman would feel the baby move inside her and everyone kind of agreed in that sense of like that is when sort of i guess life began or it in the was sense just like of feeling no yes, ethical yes, yeah yeah that's when it sort of became this like gray before that it was kind of like Okay, and then after that, it was a little more talked about and, like, discouraged, Um, which I thought was very fascinating that 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 really was common, that pre-quickening abortions were pretty accepted up until, like, the 1800s.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that is really interesting.
0: Um, And with that, it was kind of, um, we saw a rise in the 1800s in sort of the progressive era This is when it started to become this moral issue where men were really afraid that women um, who were increasingly moving away from the farm and like living in urban society, um, everyone was afraid that women would be sort of victims of male lust. And but then they also demonized women for like engaging in sexual activity. Um, And this is when we had a big like resurgence of like interest in the topic sort of of abortion in in a in a public scale or like political scale
1: that's interesting i mean and it kind of is one of those like of course situations Mm -hmm. where you see this tension of like we're concerned that women's will be victims of male lust without obviously holding men accountable Mm -hmm. to not lusting in women after women in those ways and then also it's gonna be your responsibility if something happens to you that you didn't choose
0: absolutely which i
1: think is again still an issue that we Mm -hmm. face and so this idea of Um, For me, it's like, how do we create as much safety Mm -hmm. for women as possible um, via that the form of birth control Mm -hmm. or, you know, changing the way that we have societal discourse around. Yes, because it was a lose lose
0: for women, because also this wasn't even um, one thing that was really surprising to me that I genuinely hadn't thought about is um, a lot of women in that time, um, would a lot of the women who were having abortions were married women who already had children. Yeah. It was just that they were having so many children that they would literally die of childbirth because they were having too many children. And so women were like having abortions because they could no longer feed all the mouths. They could no longer take care of all the children. And it wasn't the men's responsibility like Mm -hmm. to just Stop getting their wives pregnant, you know. No. It, anyway, so it was this lose lose scenario for women. It wasn't even just women who were outside of wedlock engaging in sex. It was married women who were mm-hmm. having abortions because they simply their bodies couldn't handle it anymore. Right. Um, so yeah, it really became this sort of breaking point of um, you start to see in that time period a lot of political figures um, getting really afraid of like the white birth count had gone down mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. And so there's this like fear of like, oh no, the white race, like we need to like hold on to ourselves and like right. repopulate. And even Theodore Roosevelt had some sort of quote about like a woman who any wo- white woman of good stock needs to like do her duty and reproduce and stuff like that. And I was like, come on, Teddy, you did the national parks. Why <laughs> do you have to Teddy? go there? <laughs> like, well, and yeah,
1: that again, that is like a discourse that continues to exist. Right. And I think this yeah. is where for me, this conversation always comes back to, like, wh- what is the original root? And racism mm. is at the root of, like, almost oh all of it. Oh, my gosh, right?
0: yes. And it's... Because this is still Especially a Especially in this issue. It is shocking yeah. how much race, you know, really was a part of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And how still it's, like, directly correlated to a lot of the policies that we see. And it's directly correlated to the way that the church exists in the world. Yes. um, And this is a mini tangent that I am now going to go on. So, <laughs> so I'm we'll going buckle up. just strap in. So a conversation actually that I've been having a lot with our audio engineer, Danny has been about this book that she's reading called white too long, the legacy of white supremacy in American Christianity. And in that book, it came out in like 2020. So it's really updated research. And in that book, they talk about the realities of racism as it relates to the church. Mm. And one of the things that has resonated with me is that there is actually a correlation between the frequency of someone's Sunday morning attendance and their racism, that the more mm. frequently you attend a Sunday morning Christian service, the more racist you probably are, mm. um, which I think speaks. That's troubling. Yeah, deeply. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I mean, Sunday morning is the most segregated day of the week. Like it speaks to the reality of racism in the church mm. and how deeply intertwined those two things are. Mm. So when we talk about this idea of fear around white people not having enough kids, I mean, this is still very much a reality that we're facing in this bigger conversation, because, you know, if you get to a place where, um, the point of privilege is that you can afford to not have kids, Mm -hmm. right? Which is often existing within white communities. Um, then you're going to have white people having less kids. And then you have to face the fact that by 2045, white people in the United States are estimated to be the minority. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if that is a fear in policy and in politics, and it's a fear in the church, then you're going to see the church start coming out with policy or pushing policy that's going to support the birth of white children, regardless of the life that those children Mm -hmm. are going to have. And that's going to continue to directly um, oppress and harm marginalized communities, because those harmful systems are still going to exist. Um, and so, what I think is really interesting is the way that those go together, and this idea of you know white fright, and this mm-hmm. idea that you know immigration numbers are going up, and white people are having less kids because white people can afford mm-hmm. to either have less children or. They can afford the proper birth control or access to abortion in order to make sure that their families are smaller. Um, And they can live in a world where, you know, they can afford that for one another. Um, And all of these other systems tend to lead to higher childbirth rates, albeit often more unsafe, especially if you're a woman of color in the U.S. Oh my gosh, yes.
0: Maternal care for like birth rates for, yeah, yeah. it's, it's troubling.
1: And so the whole thing just continues to spiral. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's because all of it stems and exists in this anchoring point of racism. Yes. And until that is fully addressed, all of these other things continue to exist. And so pulling this string is like pulling all of these others. Mm-hmm. And you can't ignore racism in the conversation around pro-life and pro-choice. Yes.
0: Yes. because i mean early early in this conversation like in the 1800s eugenics enters the scene and Mm -hmm. it it, it's this whole idea that i mean we all know eugenics um this idea of trying to i guess create the uh, quote unquote like perfect or ideal human um but a lot of the things that they um they when this came into the abortion conversation, it was around this idea of like white people are not having enough babies and we need to make sure white people have enough babies because they're the quote unquote, like good stock. Right. Um, And this um, started this insane, uh, I just feel like it's really, it doesn't, fit with the conversation that was going on around the moral morality of abortion, because at that time this sort of quote unquote less desirable traits were disabilities, race, poverty, and criminality. Like they actually thought that you could weed out. They thought that poverty and criminality were, personality traits that you could weed out of a child. Like that was a part of uh, eugenics. Yeah. And so because of that, there was this mass movement for poor women to be forcibly sterilized they, so that they couldn't yeah. have children and black women to be forcibly mm-hmm. sterilized so that they wouldn't reproduce, which yeah. is sickening. Because in the time yeah. in one hand, you're saying abortion is immoral. On the other hand, you are willingly sterilizing tens of thousands of women and how do those you can't tell me that those match up it is obvious Mm. that there's racism there is obvious that there's political and this is still happening yes
1: like i saw something the other day that was a story of a woman who went in for a emergency c a black woman who goes in for an emergency c-section and comes back out with her tubes tied without her permission like this Mm. happens all the time and it can default back to the doctors who can just argue that something came up and they needed to do it for her safety, which is not the case. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's one of those things where we see it and it's easy, especially even with this to look at it and see it at an arm's length, even 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. But the reality of it's still currently happening because these systems still exist mm-hmm. and these mindsets still exist. Yeah. Is like a major part of
0: it. Yeah. yeah but that's like similar with the, ice camps that right. were happening where women were being forcibly sterilized mm-hmm. without their knowledge or consent. Yep. You know, it is still happening. We can't argue that it's not still happening. Yep. Um, anyways, I, yeah. So I think, um, race was definitely a big, big part of this abortion conversation. Um, and the thing that was very fascinating to me in, um, researching for this is the religious decisions Um, that really weren't until much more modern history. Like Mm -hmm. it wasn't until 1869 that Pope Pius the ninth actually declared that abortion was not okay in the Catholic church. Mm -hmm. That was shocking to me. 1869. I don't know why, but in my mind I was like, it must've always been not okay. But
1: That's a much more modern history. Um, And that's a point where, this is where, if you have insight on this, please share it with us, because I'm not well-versed in this Mm -hmm. point. I have heard it, so I will share it, and then I would love feedback to be able to clarify it, Mm -hmm. or sources, so please share them with us. But I heard that this point was a result of dialogue between Protestant and Catholic communities, Mm. um, where there was a concern that the Protestants were having more children than the Catholics (laughs) and the Catholics were concerned that the Protestants were going to have too many kids. We got to, we got to have more kids than them. And And so they said that abortion was no longer moral. It Mm -hmm. wasn't something that you could do to ensure that Catholics continued to have more children than Protestants. Pop out them children. You know, you can't have us dang Protestants running around. You know, I'm
0: not sure if that's true or not, but I'm also not surprised. Like I would not be surprised.
1: Yeah. I would love if you have contacts on that. Because I heard it and it felt, I mean, it felt right. It feels like it fits, (laughs) but I want to make sure that that's actually right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting that it comes down to this fear of they're going to outnumber us. We must continue to multiply. Yeah. Even though when you do, what do you have to offer? Yeah.
1: You know, that's the part for me, especially now, just generally being a woman who is of childbearing age, like Mm -hmm. to have kids right now, it's like, what for?
0: Yeah. You know, is it ethical
1: to have a child Mm -hmm. right now? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's a whole other conversation. But I mean, it is that thing where it's like, once I have it,
0: what is, what is offered to the child once it's born? Mm Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Um. Yeah. So you did a lot of uh, research specifically around the pro-life movement beginning in the U.S.
1: Yeah. Share sure some of that.
0: Yes. So
1: um, when we look at the pro-life movement in the U.S., the system um, of legal abortions that people just really kind of kept quiet began to dissolve in the mid 19th century. Um, and so when we see this first, you know, right to life movement that starts to pick up, it was actually picked up by, um, physicians who were really worried about their professional status. Mm -hmm. Um, before that moment, they had really been unregulated. Um, and so you start to see this space, um, where they don't really have, Um, the authority to begin making these things so they start to push this movement which is
0: kind of weird which like the professionalization of medicine was fascinating i didn't really until doing this research understand how that affected abortion Mm -hmm. and access to abortion yeah because when it became professionalized it went from moving doctors from like having um you know birth being something that took place in the home to birth being something that you are encouraged to do within the walls of a hospital. Right. And with that comes the price of being able to afford having birth in a hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you really start to see this massive gap of who can and cannot then afford healthcare and right to birthing. You know, because having a kid is expensive. It is insanely outrageous. expensive. Yeah. Um and Yeah, that's a whole other rant that I could go on at the moment. Mm -hmm. But privatization and professionalization of medicine starts to create this insane gap between rich people who can afford it and poor people who can't. And so then, again, die in childbirth.
1: All links into this overarching system of things, right? So you have women who are usually having children in accompaniment with midwives yeah and yet suddenly midwives are vilified yes
0: because midwives became synonymous with abortion at that time doctors were really frustrated so they were like just essentially finger pointing and be like midwives don't know what they're doing but secretly Uh they were like they're actually and (laughs) most people if you
1: i've been very interested in the conversation the resurgence of midwives lately Mm, yeah and a lot of it has to do with the fact that having a kid is too expensive and because childbirth has been pushed into this professionalization of medicine, there are things that doctors do that they don't really listen to the woman having the child. And so Mm -hmm. there are things that are done that are just so standardized that it's not there's not room for customization woman to woman. And that can actually end up generating harm as well um, in the eyes of a lot of the midwife community. So it is interesting. interesting to see that begin to come back also and be like, not only is this too expensive, but also you know, there are things that the women might want that are okay and that might feel better to them. And I mean, they're the one literally birthing a human. So if it's medically in alignment, I don't I think that it's
0: fine. Yeah.
1: So another piece of this conversation that's interesting is that the argument often made in the vilification of midwives was that um, they didn't have the proper medical insight mm-hmm. or embryonic knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. But really what people have started to see is that they took this fetus and turned them into a stand-in for this like bigger movement that's happening. Mm-hmm. They turned that into uh, like the the image that we're moving towards. And so you start to see this idea of being very like anti-abortion, really just plugging into concerns around a woman's um, ability to have bodily autonomy, have rights, um, have an understanding of their own reproductive anatomy. Mm -hmm. And so you see the woman who is in their body, unable to, express their body's needs and yet you see someone telling them what their needs are um and allowing their body to speak for them Mm -hmm. which isn't you know listening to the person that is in front of you anyway and again something that we still see but i think it's interesting um that this is really that moment where we start to see uh the fetus beginning to take on the identity of the movement
0: yeah yeah and having Mm -hmm. that be sort of more of a um One thing that I think is fascinating is when we look at sort of both sides, pro-life, pro-choice, one thing that I've heard is that, and I I agree with, is um, the pro-life movement focuses almost solely on the baby Mm -hmm. and the fetus, Mm -hmm. whereas the pro-choice movement focuses almost solely on the mother Mm -hmm. and the woman. Right. Um, And, you know, I think that in a lot of ways it is it's dangerous when we get to that place where it's mutually exclusive. Like we can only focus on one or the other Mm -hmm. when in reality, I think it needs to be a more complex, like, you know, coming together of how do we honor both and how do we come together and focus on both in a way that is, um, beneficial and helpful. And I don't have a good answer for that Mm -mm. because this is such a deeply rooted, complex thing. Yeah. And there's so many other issues around race and money and, um, religion like it yeah. just has become so politicized I think it's hard to um get away from that but I do think it's fascinating that that's sort of when that movement k- takes on the fetus as kind of being its um I guess figurehead of the movement or whatever you know kind of the token
1: no I agree with that and I think it is such a gray space and it's important that we're listening to the in in really painting the entirety of the picture yeah and one of the things I saw that I thought was interesting um is that you know the pro-life movement a critique of it um is that it is um kind of like baseline easy activism Mm -hmm. that you know you're advocating on behalf of a life that cannot see you cannot speak for itself cannot, you know, pro- project or name its own needs or its own expectations of the movement in supportment in support of it yeah. versus some of these other things that often stand in opposition to the pro-life movement like the civil rights movement or the women's rights movement or all of these other things that often come in tension yeah. and it's because those movements are created and consisted of people Mm-hmm. who can speak for their own needs and can name when something is not actually in alignment or an allyship with their needs. Yeah. Otherwise you're speaking for something that cannot speak for itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that is where, for me, that tension really starts to pick up is, yeah. is this thing that I'm feeling something that I need to be throwing energy behind? Is it something where I'm just kind of projecting onto this movement Um, Mm -hmm. am I really doing this in alignment with this life or is it something within me? Mm -hmm. You know, those tensions begin to unwind. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Something that, um, I thought was really interesting is as I was listening to that liturgist episode, one of the points that they kind of bring up is this idea of people who are, you know, protesting at a Planned Parenthood clinic, Mm -hmm. um, Genuinely believe that that issue is like, you know, it is so. If you believe that the fetus is alive at Mm -hmm. the moment of conception, then you believe that that fetus is being killed sort of out of its own volition, that you are trying to stand on this sort of moral issue and you are going and, you know, picketing right or wrong Mm -hmm. at this place on this thing that you deeply believe in, and that, that that in itself is not like that is an honorable thing in the sense of you are standing for something that you really believe. Mm -hmm. Um, However, they also brought up how it's at this point sort of picketing at a Planned Parenthood and yelling at mothers who aren't able to care for, you know, yelling Mm -hmm. at women who, may not be able to care for a variety of reasons is ineffective at this point. Yeah. Yelling at the other side and telling them what to believe is ineffective at this point because it's not really changed anything. Right. And I think that's interesting if we think of that. So we think of this issue of like, you know, someone who would be pro-life and maybe is picketing. They truly do believe that this is a moral issue that they like need to speak up against right. because they're outraged about it. Right. um, And at that point, we I feel like we sort of lose the ability to have conversation because mm-hmm. on the other side, you know, we're almost even talking about two different things. Like in that sense, yeah. of we're talking about the baby and over here, we're talking about a right to choose. And those are, those are different things. Yeah. We're kind of not meeting each other in that conversation. And, um, I don't know. I think that that made me see that a little bit differently because I don't think, cause I am pro-choice mm-hmm. and I've never really, I've always been deeply outraged by people who will go and protest. Right and where I still think that that causes a lot of harm if we take a step back and think about okay this person obviously deeply cares about this mm-hmm. how can we engage in conversation with the other side and right. come to a place where we're coming up with some sort of comprehensive solution that can further all of us you know yeah. or and i don't have a good we just we need something that's more Viable. Yeah.
1: You know, and I think what has happened, and some of what we get to even later, is that really triggering and weaponizing language has been revolved around this issue. Yes. And it's made it to where we can't come to a solution that honors both our, you know, collective Mm -hmm. understanding of the gospel Mm -hmm. and also recognizes that there is a separation of church and state. So we can't just keep trying to push policy into a religious a system, agenda yeah you know like that's not effective
0: no, either it's not it never To happened. any of our goals pick like, up a U.S. history textbook it you know, has never
1: worked for us it's not good for evangelistic purposes no, if that's what you're about it's not it's not gonna for convert policy. someone no. you know like it's it's not effective and yet we see these spaces just pushing this so heavily versus opening up conversation around what is going on inside of me Mm-hmm. that makes this something that I care about. Mm-hmm. Like, let's have that conversation about mm-hmm. the spiritual and, yeah, mental the why. and emotional. Where did you get to where you? Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about, you know, how can we actually begin to prevent this? What are the needs of the people who feel like they need to yes. go through this? Like there's no compassion or grace yes. in, in that place. It's a lot of judgment and that is just not, not mm-hmm. in alignment mm-hmm. to me. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. So we got on a pretty big tangent. So it's <laughs> us go coming, back to the history. Coming back.
1: So by the 1900s, you see pretty much every state has a law that would have some level of um, forbidding abortion at any stage. Um, but almost all of these laws had what was seen as a therapeutic exception where a physician could provide an abortion at their own discretion so long as the abortion preserved the life of the mother. So, um, what they saw was that this did create a loophole that made abortions available, but it also made doctors, the ones who really had the ultimate say on whether or not this was something that could be done. Um, Mm -hmm. this also creates that black market for women who couldn't access Mm -hmm. safe abortion. Um, now after that, there's really not a lot of anti-abortion movement until about 1965 because the state laws were working right Mm -hmm. and you would see these persecutions of um abortionists and the harassment of women and all of these things up until that point um and so you don't see a lot of traction happening in that space
0: yeah one thing that i think is interesting is um that during that time period sort of that um in between 1900 and 1965 is when we really see birth control to start to make a big um movement so it, there was a woman named margaret sanger who um she's actually the one who coined the term birth control but she would do a lot of really interesting work where she would actually mail diaphragms in the mail um to women so that they could access birth control she actually ended up getting there's like um this guy I think his name is Anthony Comstock. His last name is Comstock, but he um, there's a really funny episode of The Dollop, which is like a U.S. history podcast run by two comedians. And I love it. It's hilarious. Um, I think it's episode number 70, but they do a whole episode on Comstock and just how outrageous he was. But essentially, it was this guy who had a moral prerogative to um, make sure that like any pornographic or lewd um sexually related material could not be transmitted like through the mail specifically because that was the primary (laughs) mode of communication back then Uh so sending birth control through the mail was illegal under those laws as well as pornography was illegal to like send through the mail so anyways highly recommend listening to that episode just because it's funny um but under those laws margaret singer actually like was um you know, I guess, legally, what's the word? She wasn't arrested, but she essentially, like, was told that she had to stop because it was illegal. Um, But after that, she actually opens a the country's first birth control clinic in Brooklyn. And um, even though it was illegal and she intentionally leaked that she had done that to the media herself to get traction <laughs> that then allowed her to go to court and uh-huh. argue why birth control should be legalized. Just fascinating. She really was very interesting. Yeah. Oh, um, very, very interesting person. But anyways, so she actually ends up um, founding the American birth control league, which then ends up, moving into Planned Parenthood like that is what eventually became Planned Parenthood yeah um so yeah that's just like a little history on sort of a lot of birth control movement was happening in that time period where the government was starting to see like okay it should be legal for doctors to talk about birth control Mm -hmm. with people who are seeking birth control
1: yeah yeah that makes sense too in thinking about all of the things that Planned Parenthood does Yes. You know, I think a, a major misconception of Planned Parenthood is that they only do yeah, abortions. which
0: they did not which start isn't true. until Roe versus Wade and because a it was lot illegal. still don't. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's, a, I remember... A lot don't. The one yeah. in Columbia doesn't. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I mean, the work that they do in providing safe um, and affordable health care to women in communities is huge. Yes. And I think that is one business that before we get to a place where people start really loving to just project, even their... Um, disapproval of abortions in general, they project it onto Planned Parenthood themselves, not realizing that there are many people in their own lives who rely on that place for healthcare and for somewhere that will actually listen to them and understand their body and what it looks like. And so that is just one of many big feelings is Planned Parenthood does a lot of really incredible stuff and it's worth looking into Before just writing off the whole organization. Yes,
0: especially if you're in a place where you cannot afford birth control. I know countless friends who have gone there before because they weren't able to afford going anywhere else. Yep. Like it is, they do so so much. Their STI screenings, like their Planned Parenthood does, so many incredible things. Um, Yeah. I love Planned Parenthood. (laughs) Donate to Planned Parenthood.
1: Yes. So um, in the 60s, though, we start to see people really wanting to see a lot of these laws changed. And in 1959, the American Law Institute put together and advocated for um, the liberalization of abortion law. So Mm -hmm. they began to push that the law needed more exceptions for women who experienced sexual assault Mm-hmm. Um, who ran the risk of having a high risk pregnancy or something being wrong with the fetus itself that would make it incompatible with light human life um, or whose mental or physical health was at risk. Right. Mm-hmm. And this was really pushed by this bigger cultural shift in U.S. histories about abortion and reproduction yeah. and birth control and all of these things. And what was it? kind of interesting within this is that it was actually in the sixties that we start to see this witnessing in American culture of, um, infant death and, um, extreme fetal deformity. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a sleeping pill that was out at the time that caused a lot of birth defects. Mm -hmm. And because of that, that pushed this, um, into the mainstream in a different kind of way. Mm -hmm. But of that, what's interesting to me um, is one of the articles I found on this notes that images of white middle class women in their um, deformed infants peppered American media capturing the imaginations and parental fears of many Americans. Mm -hmm. So, again, when we talk about how interconnected this conversation is to all the other conversations that we're having, it's to me very relevant to note that it wasn't until images of white middle class women started Mm -hmm. to come out that this conversation begins to expand right the dialogue is happening around white middle-class women and yet it's mostly impacting what is likely to be low-income women Mm -hmm. of color Mm -hmm. um which continuously goes on but this eventually helped push into a reform of abortion laws um and so then, of course, you see the uprise of anti-abortion political movements, mm-hmm. um, specifically groups within um, Catholic spaces, Protestant spaces, um, housewives, all coming out to push mm-hmm. that this is not something that they want to see happening. Um, and then in 1973, we get Roe versus Wade, which legalizes mm-hmm. abortion in all 50 states. Um, Now, with this, again, in the 70s, a lot of the anti-abortion movement was really heavily Catholic, um, and they tried to pose it as a rights issue rather than a religious one. Um, But also, a lot of the ways that Roe versus Wade
0: impacted the movement did cause a lot more change. And to me... That's what's really interesting is it really was, everyone saw it as a Catholic issue. Like it was yeah. mostly the Catholic Church that had such a big issue with it because the Pope had passed that in 1869. Um, and so actually something that I thought was super interesting is that before the 70s, evangelical Christian groups, such as the Southern Bas- Baptist Convention, actually passed um positive policy saying that women should have access to abortion and that the government should have a limited role in that in 1971, 74, and 76. Hmm. Um, And that white evangelicals themselves saw abortion as a Catholic issue before sort of the late 1970s, which is Hmm. interesting because it really largely was until the late 1970s um, white evangelicals were not in that movement.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think what's then even more interesting about this is we get to this place in the 70s where we start to see this um, heavy personification of the fetus, which we've touched on a bit throughout this whole thing, how that becomes really problematic. Um, And in this place, it especially was because what would happen is they would view... You know mother and fetus as two completely different things Mm -hmm. and mother is totally pushed out of the conversation Mm -hmm. so you see this complete isolation um, using really graphic images um, in dialogue in um, you know terminology that is used to take the fetus and make it so personified that um, they were able to build an entire rights movement around Mm -hmm. it now we start to see new medical technologies after world war ii which then allowed for the viewing and the treatment um, of mother and fetus during pregnancy to happen in a whole new way so you see like the ongoing evolution of science then begin to really expand this conversation Mm -hmm. um although we know that medical care is expensive so the more evolution that happens within medical care the more expensive it becomes for mothers to have access to it yeah um and just a lot of effort to really push the mother out of the picture and to keep the focus um, on the fetus, which then intensifies the language that we're using. Um, now, this is a point where I get really frustrated with how this movement plays mm-hmm. out because of the way that it's like you take this dialogue that could be really healthy, and then you just just skyrocket <laughs> it to a point that you're like, what is going on? So. Yeah at this point you start to see activists, um, who are grasping for really intense language and you see comparisons of legal abortion to the Jewish Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Um, you see the equation of the Roe versus Wade to, um, the 1857 Dred Scott decision, Mm -hmm. which basically said that slave or free, all black people were not considered U S citizens and thus were not protected by the constitution. So essentially equating a fetus to, um, a black person at that time. Mm -hmm. And they said that essentially this legal access to legal abortion was naming a fetus as less than human and degrading the value of human life. Mm -hmm. Um, and this just really, I'm like, okay, listen, this is so frustrating to me. Um,
0: and well that and that's part of the I feel like the issue with some of this conversation is um the use of really intense language, yeah, really intentionally intense and polarizing language because it was in the late nineteen seventies um when sort of those evangelical groups started coming in after um there was a Supreme court decision, green versus Conley, which ruled that, um, essentially the whole issue around white flight from public schools. So Mm -hmm. like after segregation was like mandated federally, Mm -hmm. a lot of white people pulled their children out of schools and just sent them to private school. And those private schools were obviously deeply segregated because they were intentionally moving out to make their own white school. Right. Um, but the Supreme court then ruled that that, they could not be considered nonprofits or a charitable organization because they were intentionally segregating. Um so there was this big like upheaval mm-hmm. around um sort of feeling again like your whiteness is at stake and mm-hmm. it's um at you know sort of at a loss and so there was this kind of this churning among white evangelicals and it was really when Paul um Weir- Weirich, I think it's mm-hmm. Weirich, um was this like big um you know, white evangelical who also did a lot of, like, political, like, activism, I guess, in the sense of, like, trying to, you know, change policy, and he saw this opportunity for white evangelicals to have a much larger voting base. It was really at that point, I mean, there was not a lot of unity on issues. Um, And so he saw this potential for white evangelicals to come together and to kind of rally around one political party. And so he spent several years after Roe versus Wade sort of, and again, kind of being inspired by Green versus Conley in this place of, we need to come together and vote on stuff. Um, It wasn't really until several years after Roe versus Wade where it really dawned on him that abortion would be the big hot topic. hot topic issue that they could all rally around. So Wyrick started using all this really intense language around abortion to rally the entire white evangelical community around one political party, Mm -hmm. um, which then becomes really dangerous because you know, they were kind of intentionally using this language to get everyone rallied on the same page. And then, you know, sort of using that to create, um, a larger voter base for white evangelicals. Yeah. And then you see like the moral majority and all of Jerry Falwell and just all of that mess with Ronald Reagan. And it really was the moral majority kind of coming out of that place of, you know, everyone kind of rallying around this idea that white Christianity was at stake and mm-hmm. so they needed to protect it and they needed to vote and they needed to get people into office who would protect our country and yeah. you know, vote for anti-abortion and things like that. And so it was them who really, um, that party that elected a lot of the presidents that we saw all throughout the like 70s mm-hmm. and 80s, like Reagan, he was elected because of moral majority. Yep. Um, and I feel like this is, that is where we start to see a lot of issues where when you... Anytime something has been over-politicized, I just, we can't have conversations about it anymore. Mm-hmm. And it becomes too polarized. And to me, that's where it gets so, like, uh, it's just, like, icky to me where... It was this issue that someone intentionally looked at and was like yes this will be the hot button issue that we can get everyone infuriated about and so we're going to exploit that to get more voters and i don't and know it, if it was necessarily malicious intentions but when oh, i read it that's what yeah. i see well so. and it
1: also speaks and we see this happening even now right with um you know the vaccination politicization mass oh politicization my gosh. and i yes. think it to me it is such a a flag that the people who are in power do not respect the people they're serving
0: yes because
1: to to look at something thing and to say we can play on their ignorance to gain more power versus we can equip them to be more knowledgeable to create a better space Mm -hmm. says a lot about the people that are leading these spaces that are leading in churches and politics that Mm -hmm. play into some of these things to me and that's where I I really struggle and knowing like that's how Reagan got elected and all of those things. It's like, God, there's no one is safe from the system. Yeah. Like <laughs> there is, there is no place where you can look and not find fault. And I think when we look at this conversation, um, it's important to me that we find a way to reinstate grace and empathy into the way that we talk about it and to be able to objectively remove ourself mm-hmm. from the conversation as much as possible Um, and to be really open and clear when we are choosing to insert ourselves back into it, because I think that without that, we get to this place where there are a few people pushing, um, propaganda that gets to a place where we don't even know really what we're talking about anymore. Yes. And like, you hear all of this about religious leaders really spearheading and finding a way to politicize this entire thing, um, And then you see, I mean, there was something in our notes here that talks about how once we start to get into the 80s, and this continues to pick up, between the early 1980s and early 2000s, there were 153 assaults, 383 death threats, three kidnappings, 18 attempted murders, and nine murders related Mm -hmm. to abortion providers. And that's from one source. Oh my gosh. Right? So it's like you have these religious um, figureheads, pushing this political narrative saying that it's what God would want. Right. Yes. And then turning around and creating space for this level of devaluing of human life. And this is just one source recording for abortion providers that says nothing about the women who had to undergo that experience Mm -hmm. about anything that was happening that we can't record because it was happening behind closed doors, Mm -hmm. um, about the emotional, mental, verbal abuse that people underwent, the physical abuse Mm -hmm. people underwent. Um, Like, for me, that is where I get to the place where I'm like, is this isn't about human life. Yeah. Because you're not valuing human life. Yeah. You're creating a figurehead um, that could one day become human life and using that to oppress someone who
0: has been alive long enough to be able to have a child. Um, Yeah. I think it becomes so, so dangerous whenever we use religion as a tool As a political tool. Yeah. Because, and it just demonizes everyone else. And that is so ineffective when you're trying to have any sort of productive conversation because the truth is we can look at it and see it is clearly an issue that we do not have proper birth control, sex education, that the abortion rate is high. Like, it is clearly there's an issue there. Mm -hmm. And so... I feel like all sides can look at that and say like, yes, this is an issue. But when we're when we're dividing ourselves so much, we can't even get together and have conversation about that. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it's no wonder that abortion has been one of the one like areas, one like hot topic areas of our country where we have not seen any movement in the past Like. 10 to 15 years because Mm -hmm. we're too busy bickering. We can't come together and make some sort of solution of, okay, well, how do we care for mothers? Mm -hmm. How do we make people feel like they're so supported that they are able to financially afford having a child? Like you shouldn't be able to. Yeah. Affording a child should not be a thing. Yeah.
1: Well, and it's because this is the one thing that I think hits at every major intersection Mm -hmm. of all of these other issues Mm -hmm. because it was going to impact every minority or mm-hmm. oppressed group. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that you can play on at every single intersection. And it involves a um, community that you're advocating for that cannot speak for themselves or the people that are directly involved in that that potential life. Um, and so I think that that is, that is huge. And from a Christian perspective as well, mm-hmm. this is another space that I think is really important to, to touch on. Um, there's a lot of language that we use in Christian spaces. When we talk about scripture that we use to directly support our stances one way or the other, um, that especially in the pro-life space, I think um, needs rethinking because it comes off incredibly um, anti-Semitic in perspective. Um, and also is very, I think just collectively disrespectful to um, the Jewish community. Um I think one of the things that was the most jarring to me that I saw, and I, I was like, "Ugh!" and yet not at all surpri- surprised was, especially in the late '80s, um, seeing this like communication being given to children um, as we're teaching children about, you know, anti-abortion rhetoric um, that would talk about the children themselves being seen as quote survivors of the abortion holocaust," right? Mm. That they. Were the ones shaping these new family values because they survived as though that was something every one of those children were going to face, right? Mm-hmm. And I just get so frustrated because most of the conversation that Christians are having is not taking into consideration that the verses that they're pulling from are historically Jewish verses in texts first. Mm-hmm. Um, also, that they're then trying to push the system on belief on not even just the Jewish community, but like any religious community or non-religious community that does not believe what they believe. But then they're using these very um, horrific moments within Jewish history as a catchphrase. Yeah. To then push their own agenda. belittling
0: all that happened. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Just downplaying that it's even a Mm -hmm. thing that exists. Knowing that from what I've seen from what I studied, that more Jewish communities fall in alignment with pro-choice. Mm-hmm which then is like, okay, so how do you piece that? So there were a lot of things I found that I just thought were interesting, um, in us thinking about how we come to form a theological understanding of
0: this. Yeah.
1: Um, and for me, I think it's, you know, how do we learn from the Jewish context so that we can begin to approach this verse appropriately or these verses or these scriptural understandings appropriately. Um, so I found an article written by Rabbi Dana Ruttenberg, um, that was listed in USA today and also on their own platform that said a lot of things um, that I thought were really helpful. So um, some of what they talk about is that within Jewish law, there is room for abortion. Um, So they write that for the first 40 days of gestation, a fetus is considered mere fluid um, and that the fetus is regarded as a part of the mother for the duration of the pregnancy. It is not considered to have the status of personhood until birth and the Mishnah teaches that if the mother's life is in danger from the pregnancy or even the labor, that the fetus may be sacrificed to save her life unless the baby's head has already emerged. Mm. Um, only then is the fetus or baby considered to be a soul. Elsewhere in the Mishnah, it teaches that if a pregnant woman is about to be executed, they do not wait for her to give birth, but if she has already sat on the birth stool or the head is beginning to crown, then they wait for her to give birth. Um, So it is not gestation, but birth that is the critical marker in what Mm -hmm. they talk about. Um, They also go on to talk about how fluid this is, right? Because there are situations where the mother's life, perhaps um, in a more modern or contemporary legal context, might not be in danger. Mm -hmm. Um, But there might be other reasons to go on record for permitting that abortion, um, in which case the fetus might suffer if carried to term when a mother's physical or mental health is in danger or if her psychological well-being is at risk and there are a lot of um cautions and assessments and things that go into that um in defining what is a life-threatening medical need mm-hmm. um but in that space there's flexibility yeah um there's also i mean there is another rabbi that goes on to point in this article that um it is clear that in Jewish law, an Israel night is not liable to capital punishment for fetis- feticide, feticide? Um, or abortion, even though her life was not at stake. Um, this permissive ruling applies even when there is no direct threat to the life of the mother, but merely a need to save her from great pain, which falls within the rubric of great need. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of flexibility there. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing I'll note, and then there's a, all these articles are linked, so I definitely mm-hmm. recommend reading them. Yeah. Um, but in her article, Rabbi Allison Barry, um, notes and says that in Hebrew, the word for breath is intertwined with the concept of life early in Genesis, God breathes life into Adam. Um, and it says, then God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life and man became a living soul. The final word of this phrase means two things soul as it is translated here, but it can also mean breath or even life force. Um, and it goes on to talk about how, um, life personhood is marked when a baby takes his first breath because of that. Um, the -hmm. idea of breath being intertwined with life and death, all of these things, right? So we get to this place where we're talking about using, especially old Testament text Mm -hmm. to solidify a stance one way or the other. And yet the original authors, yielders, readers of that text Mm -hmm. interpret it a completely different way. Yeah. And instead of, you know, heating that cue and processing what that can mean for us, we just completely reinterpret it and say, oh, no, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Which is like,
0: what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely think it's really fascinating when we start to think of the theological side of this. Because, um, you know, obviously there is a lot to consider otherwise um but when we start to think of you know what does it mean life is very complex and what when do we truly become who we are when do Mm -hmm. we when do we take on you know is it when we take on consciousness is it when we are in like concept conceived Mm -hmm. um is it when we first breathe is it you know there's so many like things in between that it it's such a complex issue that it is hard honestly, for me to know personally, where, where do I believe life begins? Mm -hmm. Where, who of us can truly know where life begins? And it's so fascinating for me to see that, um, you know, that in Jewish culture, it was first breath. And um, yeah, I just, I just think that a lot of this conversation has become so weaponized and politicized that I know for me, it took much longer for me to really sit down and think like, what do I actually think theologically? Like, what do I believe God has to say about this? Mm -hmm. And what do I believe that this has any, like has to say about God, honestly. yeah. Um, And in so many ways, like so many other things we've talked about, I'm not sure that I have a clear answer for that. But what I do have a clear answer for is that, you know, I, I do believe life is sacred and life is complex. Mm -hmm. And um, I believe that it's not fair for us to push a religious agenda on an entire country, like to use religion as a tool of the state that gets really messy because also mm-hmm. not everyone is a Christian. So yep. <laughs> using abor- mandating a mandating abortion from a Christian perspective, doesn't make sense for a country where not everyone in most people don't identify as Christian anymore. We're in a post Christian, you know? Yeah. Um, and so at, at that point I'm like, that just doesn't even make sense anymore. I believe that sort of that, that moral piece of it should mm-hmm. be our internal work. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that our government should have anything to say on whether it's moral or not. Mm -hmm. I think that they should protect us and um, care for us so that we can seek adequate health care safely, regardless of class and race. Mm -hmm. And um, I think this is such a complex issue and where I really have I don't have an issue with the pro-life movement itself. Where Mm -hmm. I have an issue is when people are very staunchly pro-life and very staunchly against birth control, against, you know, caring for women's bodies. Um, You know, they're not going to do anything to care for the child after the child is born. Mm -hmm. Um, That is where I have issues because I think that it needs to be this hybrid situation of if you're pro-life, I had a... um, Uh, my campus pastor when i was in college he would always talk about like if you're pro-life you know are you in those church are you in those hospital nurseries once those babies are born are you rocking those children and giving them the attention they need are you you know making sure that like are you a foster parent like are Mm -hmm. you caring for those children birth through adulthood like what is happening to those children like if we're going to push adoption are we making sure those children are actively being cared for yeah um And on the other side, like, are we so disregarding, you know, is there a gray space where we care so much about women's bodies that we're disregarding when life begins Mm -hmm. within that mother? You know, where does life begin in the mother? And yeah, I don't know. I just think it's a very, it's a very gray issue. And one that I think personally politics has Mm shouldn't should should not be this um, divided on and i think on both ends the
1: common denominator there is wanting to see life thrive yes and so the middle ground to that is what do we need to solve in order for Mm -hmm. that to be the case like what do we need to do in order to achieve that and i think um that if we can find and create spaces within the church recognizing that the church is A major wheel in the system that is creating this problem, which means that it also yields the same power to resolve the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, If we can create spaces that allow not just for that dialogue, but also for the entirety and the protection of all life across the board, and you can see some continuity there, I think that that would go a long way as well. Um, Because I also, part of what you were saying that sticks out to me too is you know, when does life begin? And I think part of the reason we struggle in identifying that is because we don't also have a healthy relationship with the cycle of death either. Mm, like one yeah. of the comments that I've seen come up is how can you argue life is, you know, at inception and yet someone can live, quote unquote, on a life support for however long, but are they really alive? Yeah, so you like know, what is life? Is it consciousness? Yeah. Is
0: it what you produce in society I would Mm -hmm. argue not because if we're saying it's simply what you can produce and contribute to society Mm -hmm. we're discounting you know anyone with developmental disabilities we're discounting children under the age of seven I don't know like when When does
1: yeah well and you get to the place where if you have to choose to pull a loved one off life support is that not the same thing yeah what is the Mm -hmm. value of life
0: interesting yeah Yeah.
1: and it is this big (laughs) philosophical question and we have diluted it Uh. down into this and this And because of that, there are people who
0: monetize off of that system. Because we're screaming past each other and we're so divided. Like with any other issue. Okay, this is going to be rant. But (laughs) if we're talking about, um, I've seen a lot on, we've all seen the TikTok stuff about, this is a while ago now, but um, millennial versus Gen Z. Mm -hmm. And like skinny jeans and middle part and all that. And how in a lot of ways like um i think i saw one tiktok that I was talking about how it really was like media trying to divide our yeah. generations so like millennial and gen z because those generations are so 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 passionate about social justice issues um how essentially if we're divided we're no longer thinking about the things that are important. So if we're too busy arguing mm-hmm. over the fact that skinny jeans aren't cool anymore, or you shouldn't only wear a middle part, then we're not talking about all of the powerful stuff that we could do together by, you know, changing policy and right. stuff like that. Like we, sometimes I think we are so divided politically, Here's the thing, I'm pretty anti-government in general, so I'm skeptical of any, so I understand government is necessary, uh-huh. and I'm very skeptical of yeah. any government system. So um, in my mind, government's always going to be playing us and mm-hmm. profiting off of us and trying to like pit us against each other. Right. So in my mind, if we could come together and talk about this issue, we could actually make some headway. Right. And I think that to me is a theological point yes. because I think to be able to talk instead of demonizing.
1: Well, and to recognize the role that we play in the injustice that's happening around us. Like I think Mm. in so many issues, what you see all of the time is this projection of our responsibility onto political figureheads Mm -hmm. saying, Oh, well we voted them in so they're going to fix it. Or this is our church leader and they know what we're doing. So we're just going to do what they say. Mm -hmm. And when that falls apart or that causes harm, then we're like, oh, well, that was on them. And we don't recognize that the only reason that those political figureheads have a space or that this system is even upheld is because we perpetuate it. Yeah. And so when you get to a place where you say, hey, this is an issue that falls at the intersection of all of these other systemic issues. If we can address one, it will snowball. And because of that snowball, we might be able to address all of them. Um, Let's begin to figure it out and to put in that kind of time and put in that kind of work because we do genuinely value all human life on both sides of this conversation. Yes. Then I think you get to a place where that's dangerous to the people who are in power. Mm -hmm. This is my, I mean, if you want to call it conspiracy hat on, but just (laughs) I'm steeped in
0: conspiracy. The
1: tangent that I will go on is that power exists when you give someone power.
0: Yeah.
1: And so for me in all of this conversation, you know, I can, I can appreciate where everyone comes from, from different angles in this, because there's something that drives you to be passionate about this conversation. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think
1: it's that it is because as a people, we collectively care about human life.
0: And that's honorable. That is, you know, everyone, wherever you fall, give yourself a pat on the back for actually caring, because this is an issue worth caring about. We do care about human life. So that's honorable.
1: And I think the piece that needs the work is the way in which we are able to not just hear out the other side, Mm -hmm. but figure out where's their common ground and what can we build off of? Yes. Instead of relying on major church movements that are really only to perpetuate more power for a person or political movements, which are just leveraging language in order to get someone else in power. Like the root of the issue is that there are people who are experiencing, um, very real life situations that push them to make a very real life decision and then to live with that decision. And that requires empathy and understanding and compassion Mm -hmm. as well as Mm -hmm. a very educated understanding of, you know, how do we support you moving forward and how do we create a system that doesn't cause this to be a need anymore?
0: Yes. Oh, so good. Wow. Everyone, I think we should take a deep breath again. Yeah. (laughs) Lots of breaths. That was a long episode. (sighs) This was our longest one yet. And it was really good. I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I I think this is a big conversation. So the longer makes sense. And, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of this, if you're to a place where we want to hold space for the emotions that come with this. So if you have some big feelings we are happy to dialogue yes, with you about them. I'd like to. Respectfully. Yes. Um, so please let us know your thoughts, any questions that you have, any points or rebuttal. Like we are open to that um, as long as it's coming from a very respectful place because mm-hmm. um, that's part of it is we yeah. need to be talking about yes. it just healthy. Yes. So take lots of breaths before you respond and we promise we will do that too and we'll mm-hmm. just have an open dialogue about it. Yeah,
0: absolutely, because conversation is so important, and in so many ways, I think we've lost that ability, um, to converse with the other side, Mm because we're so polarized right now, but, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, guys, we love you, thank you for listening, if you liked what you heard, um, I would love if y'all could leave us a review on iTunes, Apple Music, um, leave us, leave us. Five stars um, and uh, write us a sweet, a sweet note. Um, subscribe. Yeah. Follow so along choose. on social media,
1: yeah. on mm-hmm. wherever you get your podcasts, all the things. Um, mm-hmm. You can also check out our website for all of the notes and the links so that you can listen to these other things that we've referenced. Yeah. Um, and just if you liked it, also share it with a friend Yeah. and invite them to listen mm-hmm. as well. Um, we think the more people that we share this with, the more get to be in this community and have mm-hmm. part in this conversation. And that's important to us as well. Yes
0: it is Mm. awesome blessings love yes hugs hugs and growls from sammy i don't know (laughs) if anyone can hear but she's really growling right now hello sambo okay bye friends bye